There are people who get up every day and work to protect us from toxic chemicals in our food, our water, and our air, in the products we buy, in the places we work, and in our homes. They devote their lives to preventing cancer, learning disabilities, and other harm, but they are mostly unknown and unheralded. They're Toxic Avengers, and you'll meet them here on the Toxic Avengers podcast. Welcome to episode 13 of the Toxic Avengers podcast. Thanks for joining. In this episode, we have part one of my interview with Ted Smith, founder and executive director of the Silicon Valley Toxics Coalition. For more than 40 years, Ted has worked to clean up the extensive pollution caused by manufacturers of semiconductors in Silicon Valley, which contains the most Superfund sites in the country. In the wake of the discovery of contaminated drinking water and groundwater, the Silicon Valley Toxics Coalition successfully passed local ordinances on hazardous materials and public right to know, which became models for state and federal laws, including the Toxics Release Inventory. The coalition partnered with environmental justice groups in the Southwest to address the environmental and health challenges posed by the spread of the semiconductor industry into Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. Ted's work, along with his wife, the renowned occupational health lawyer Amanda Hawes, has continued to expand to the international level, addressing the pollution and health harms to workers and communities across the globe. He co-founded the International Campaign for Responsible Technology and co-edited the book Challenging the Chip, Labor Rights and Environmental Justice in the Global Electronics Industry. We began our conversation discussing the recently enacted federal legislation known as the CHIPS Act, which provides more than $50 billion to promote the onshoring of semiconductor production to the United States. We discussed the absence of provisions in the law to ensure that new communities aren't exposed to and harmed by pollution from the new semiconductor plants in the United States. We then discussed the early part of Ted's life, including his experiences at Wesleyan University and his time spent in Washington, D.C., as a volunteer for the anti-poverty program Volunteers in Service to America, or VISTA. Ted describes his experiences after moving to California to attend law school at Stanford and his work supporting cannery workers, which set the stage for his decades of toxics advocacy. Ted Smith is both a pioneer and a giant in the anti-toxics movement. It was an honor to discuss his life and career, and I'm looking forward to sharing our conversation with you. Here's part one of my interview with Ted Smith, recorded last December. I've, I've actually been spending time this past week, and we're going to again this week, with a guy who is a French historian, of all things, and he's at the Sorbonne, and he's uh, focusing on technology and their impact on culture and civilization. And he's been going through all the records that we have here and he's coming back to do some more of that. And it's just, it's voluminous stuff that we're going to put into an archive at San Jose state. And he's wanting to uh, write a book about all this and use a lot of that. So that's pretty cool. Well, that is, it's funny you mentioned that because that was actually something 
I was going to get to later was asking you about the archiving of the materials at San Jose State. We, we've got some. We got we've got some there, and we got a bunch more in our house that we're getting ready to get over there. But it's it's just voluminous. It's just I bet. you know enormous enormously time consuming. Right, and most of it well before it was mostly electronic records. So yeah, yeah, and so we're scanning a lot of stuff, including a lot of old newspaper stuff that is no longer available, but also right. a lot of articles that were never digitized. Right. Okay, so. Let's actually start with something from the present moment to kind of set the stage, okay. and then we can go back to the beginning, because you've been doing this work since the, mm, let's say, early 80s. Yeah. So really, I was thinking about it, Silicon Valley Toxics Coalition was formed in 1982, so it's exactly 40 years. Yeah. And obviously, a lot has happened during that time, and and everything you were doing and your your wife, Amanda, who we'll talk about in a little bit, was doing, it's all just as relevant today as it was then. And there's been a lot that's been accomplished. And then there's also still an enormous number of challenges, both for environmental and kind of community safety and health, and obviously worker safety and health. So your focus has been on the, you know, essentially the pollution of the semiconductor manufacturing industry in various forms for all this time. And what you and I were emailing about the last day was Congress recently enacting a law to spend about $52 billion uh, to incentivize semiconductor manufacturing companies to come back to the U.S. from overseas and begin developing, you know, building manufacturing plants in different places in the U.S., in part to address global supply chain issues and national security issues. And, you know, there's a, and I mean, I guess <laughs> jobs too, you know, there's a number of issues that have led to the U S sort of somewhat reversing course and seeing the need to bring those, some of that manufacturing back to the U S and there are attendant problems, potential problems with that, that really weren't addressed in the legislation as far as I can tell. And, uh, you know, the sort of the, the potential impacts of, pollution and health. So just say a little bit about that. You were following that, the development of that legislation and just, let's just, yeah, just say a little bit about where we are right now and that, just that idea of the manufacturing coming back to the U.S. and then we can go from there. Okay. Well, it's the, the CHIPS Act, what you're mentioning, is really the largest effort by the U.S. government to subsidize and support a U.S. industry in, in American history. It's a lot of people call that national industrial policy, and it's something that you know has been done before. It was done once before in the electronics sector when they funded Semitech, which was a research consortium. But this is much, much larger, and as you say, it's to as they as they say repatriate the semiconductor supply chain. Of course, it used to all be here. The U.S. was where the semiconductor industry was created. Um, it developed here in Silicon Valley, where I live. And for quite some time, all of the work was done right right here. But it, over time, it started to expand, and uh, first into other parts of this country and then other parts of the world. And in the last 20 or so years, uh, the U.S. has lost its dominance in this arena. Um, it has outsourced an awful lot of the production 
but it's also outsourced all of the hazards that we uncovered here going back 40 years. So it's a mixed bag. Bringing back manufacturing, I think, is actually a good idea, but only if it's done in a way that's going to be sustainable for the communities where these mega factories are going to be built. And the CHIPS Act itself has no uh, language in it at all to try to assure that that's going to happen. And it was a perfect opportunity for the U.S. government to say, okay, we want to support you. We want to bring this manufacturing back, but we have a few conditions that we'd like to include. If you're, if you're going to be receiving $52 billion, we want some guarantees that the manufacturing is going to be sustainable, both to the workers and to the communities. And we, we tried to get some language into that bill that would have accomplished that to some degree. Um, and unfortunately, uh, we were not successful. It was a it was a steamroller by the time uh, it, we even learned about it, and it was going ahead full steam. So uh, we're, we're now trying to figure out if there are still ways to get some of that language into some of the state and local subsidies, which are continuing to go on in places like upstate New York and in Arizona, New Mexico, uh, Ohio, a number of places where they're going to be building these new semiconductor fabrication plants. So I think it's going to be an ongoing issue. And there's no doubt that uh, there's been a lot of lessons learned over the last several decades. I mean, trying to avoid the mess that we had here where we now have more Superfund sites in Silicon Valley than any place else in the country due to the very sloppy handling of the very nasty chemicals that they use. And hopefully that's not going to be happening elsewhere. But the the challenge of worker exposure to the, the chemicals, and in, in some cases these fabs use hundreds, if not thousands of chemicals, many of which are known to be hazardous, many of which have never even been tested for hazard. So it's it's a huge ongoing issue. And um, it's it's just really needs to be addressed, and, and this legislation doesn't do it. Yeah, I saw just reading accounts of it that the, I mean the the one prominent I guess legislative naysayer on the on the bill was Bernie Sanders, who I mean I didn't read extensively what he said, but I think he was essentially characterizing the chip manufacturers as holding the U.S. hostage and saying, look, unless you you know, a shake or some, I don't think he used the term shakedown. Somebody else used the term shakedown. So if you guys don't give us this $52 billion, you know, we're, we'll, you know, we'll just keep building in Taiwan or, you know, wherever different places around the world. And I'm just wondering if whether, whether there was any legislator that you're aware of, whether Bernie or otherwise, who was sort of raising this idea of, yes, we definitely want these to come back, but we want them to come back in a way with some you know, guarantees of safety of protecting the workers, protecting the surrounding communities. Did did that weigh in at all? Do you know? Well, we, we tried to work through my own congressional representative, who is Zone Lofgren, who is, uh-huh. you know, a longtime leader in Congress. Um, she was on the January 6th committee. She's been doing, I think, a really good job. And she agreed to try to get our language into the hopper. And she she did. She inserted it, but it got knocked out. And, and she was well aware of the fact, and she said there were a number of other representatives who were well aware of the fact that these are serious issues that have to be addressed. But again, the, the industry is so powerful, and this is, this is not a first-time rodeo for them. They've been playing off communities and now countries against each other for many, many years, going back, oh, 30 years ago. They were playing off communities saying, whoever will give us the biggest subsidy, that's where we'll build our next plants. And since 
everybody wants economic development and they want the jobs and they want the tax base, um, they get tremendous response whenever they dangle one of these new projects. And they're multi-billion dollar projects. You can't build a fab for less than that. And the, the extensive supply chain that goes along that's required to <clears throat> supply a huge factory like that, again, creates thousands of jobs. So these are really plum projects. And, and basically every community wants one. Well, not every community, but major communities, and particularly those that have been suffering from, you know, bad times economically are looking at this as the, 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 the salvation to their economic problems without realizing all the other stuff that goes along with it. There was a recent exchange of, of uh, exactly that going on with a, a new micron plant that was coming down to whether it's going to be built in Syracuse or in uh, Texas outside of Austin. And they finally picked Syracuse and the people in, in Austin, the, the guy who was the county head of economic development there was quoted in the local paper saying, well, um, Syracuse just offered them more money than we could afford. And they went with the money. And that's, that's kind of what it's all about. Intel was the one who actually pioneered that whole thing um, back before they built their fab in Rio Rancho, New Mexico. And they had what they called an ideal incentive matrix where they had a shopping list of over a hundred items. And they were saying to each of the six different local communities at that point, whoever checks the box on more of these um, items and gives us everything from the tax breaks that we want to the zoning uh, uh, breaks that we need to even helping pay the moving costs that people were going to have to move in from California to come to your places. I mean, it was an incredible shopping list. And, and, and Rio Rancho won that fight They only to learn that they'd given away their tax base. And when all these new people moved in, um, their schools were overrun. They didn't have any taxes to build new schools. And Intel finally was so embarrassed that they had to build new schools. Likewise, they, they with all the effort that went into creating this ideal incentive matrix, they forgot about water supply. And these chip right. plants are just enormously thirsty, using millions of gallons of water a day. New Mexico's in a desert. Pretty soon, they realized that they didn't have enough water. They tried to start taking water away from some of the farmers who've been farming their land for generations. And it caused a big storm in New Mexico. And Intel um, finally had to back off and start agreeing to reusing a lot of the water that they were going to use one time and then dump into wastewater. So, I mean, those are the kinds of issues that, that arise when any, any new chip plant comes into a community. And, and usually the local communities don't have any awareness of that. And, and in Congress, they certainly didn't. And this thing, as I said, was a steamroller. And uh, once it got momentum with, with you know, and, and they were playing the, the China card, saying we got to do this to compete with China. And, and that was really a lot was what, what the impetus was. In any event, it's, I would say we lost that, that first round, not for lack of trying, but because the, the game was kind of stacked at that point. And, and now we're, we're starting to go back out to the various local communities where these projects are, are undergoing. New York State's also putting in a huge number. I think it's something like $6 billion on top of the federal subsidies to this Syracuse Micron project. So there are some opportunities there, I think, to, to try to get some of this, this language and, and concerns into uh, into these various projects. The I read 
the 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 White House put out a long statement after the law was enacted, talking about implementation of it and describing a interagency task force that was going to be working, you know, to coordinate within the federal government because there's a lot of different moving parts. Obviously, you know, EPA and Department of Energy and and others, and it's it's a pretty extensive long. A substantive statement, and there's virtually no mention <laughs> of environmental impacts. There's, it's most to the extent it talks about that piece of it at all. It's basically talking about streamlining permitting to make sure yeah. <laughs> that it goes as quickly as possible. And in a couple places, it mentions you know concern about the climate impacts of these projects, but not. No reference to any other aspect of pollution, worker health, community health. So yeah. it, it it was it's pretty striking. I guess it's I don't know if that's lack of institutional and historical memory at the federal level, or I mean, as you said, obviously the industry is a extremely powerful player in Washington D.C. and everywhere else. But it was just interesting to see that even EPA didn't seem if they. I don't know whether I don't know enough of what happened or what is happening to know whether EPA is trying to, you know, assert some presence on these issues or whether they're just taking a pass. I mean, that, as we'll discuss somewhat in, in the history of Silicon Valley, the and this is true in most of the conversations I've had with people, EPA generally hasn't played much of a helpful or, or proactive role anyway for many years. So it's not like it's, it's not all that surprising that they might not be all that proactive in taking this on, but... Yeah, they're generally thought of as a a minor player in most of these projects that I'm aware of. I'm thinking back to when the European Union was developing their waste electronics directive and their restriction on hazardous substances, two extremely important initiatives that were focused on the electronics industry and have since gone through and have made a significant impact. Well, at the time, the... Um, industry, American industry, American electronics industry, went to the U.S. government and they went to the U.S. trade representative and got them to intervene, claiming it was a violation of WTO trade rules. And when we learned about that, we tried to do a counter intervention. And uh, actually, at the time, it was when Clinton was president, we went to Al Gore and asked him to you know, try to put a stop to this because they were meddling in what we thought of was really good uh, environmental policy coming out of Europe that would have had a global impact. And what we learned was that this was all being done by USTR, trade representative. It was, a, it was one of these multi-jurisdictional task forces, but the point person at EPA told us that they were, you know, a, a distinct afterthought and they would set up meetings and set up agendas and at the last minute invite EPA to show up so they could say that EPA was a participant. But they had no time or no resources to really understand what was going on. They had no meaningful input. And I think that that's the case here also. This is all being run by the, the Commerce Department, Gina Raimondo. And, you know, I, I don't know enough about them to know if they're doing a decent job in terms of their you know, commerce and economic development, but they certainly don't know anything at all about um, environmental and occupational health and what, what the history is. The, the, the only institutional memory 
if there's any at all, would be at EPA and Department of Labor through OSHA. And there's there's some there's there's a, a technology development group that has actually been paying attention and, and you know, if they were involved, that would even be be better. But this is being done with without really knowledge or concern of what this long history is here. And it's really, you know, it's just a shame that that uh, it's it's come down this way. And as I say, we're we're scrambling now, trying to still figure out ways to have some impact before it's too late. And and you know, this this year is going to be an important year for that. Yeah, I wonder if there'll be opportunities. You were sort of describing state and local conditions or things that might be placed around that. I guess another maybe opportunity I don't really know is the. I guess it's case by case is the permitting, the the permitting that will have to happen for these facilities. They will have yeah. water pollution permits, air emissions permits, things of that nature. And hazardous again, waste material, how they're dealing with their hazardous waste that they produce, et cetera. Right. And, and, and again, these plants are so thirsty, they're going to have to bring in water from in, in, in the Syracuse case from a, one of the great lakes, which is, you know, quite a long pipeline they're going to have to build. So they're going to have to get permits mm-hmm. for all that. So there are points of intervention that are going to be available. And in the Southwest, it's even more of a challenge. So uh, it just means there's going to have to be local activity led by local groups that that share these kinds of concerns and are aware of the fact that, A, there are potential problems for the community, and B, that if they don't do something, nothing's going to happen. Right. And, you know, as you said, it's not it's not a bad thing that manufacturing comes back to the U S jobs come back to the U S the development of semiconductors, but the, the, the challenge is to make that try and make that happen in a way where communities and workers are protected, which has kind of been the missing piece for all these years. No, I've, I've always supported, you know, robust manufacturing capacity. That's one of the, you know, bulwarks of, of a modern society to be able to do that. And I've, I've been very disheartened by the fact that we've just kind of given that away um, over the past couple of decades. So I I think bringing it back is a really good idea, but, but not without any conditions, it's gotta be sustainable and we can't afford to go back to the bad old days where people living near these plants were suffering water pollution leading to birth defects, which is what our experience was here. Or, or where the workers themselves who are making all these incredible gadgets are themselves getting sick or having children with serious birth defects. So, I mean, we've got to just make sure that, that we don't go back to that that uh, time frame. And at this point, from everything I can tell, there's no guarantees in this whole initiative that, that are designed to prevent that from happening again. Right. Well, that's going to be really interesting now that that law was enacted. I think it was enacted in August. And, you know, the money will start to flow, appropriations of the money. So really over the next, you know, one to five years in particular, this is going to be something that's going to be taking place in various spots, like you said, all over the country. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's a really helpful kind of introduction to where things are now. So then just to say, and people are going to know this even before they start listening to this podcast, because it's going to say that you're the founder of the Silicon Valley Toxics Coalition, and you've been working in this field, as we already said, for about 40 years. So let's, and it's just amazing to think even 
maybe we'll talk about this more too, just how much the computer reliance on computers, the semiconductors, the development of the technology, all of that has grown. Of course, in 40 years, when you started out there, you know, there was much less of the technology reliance and development of technology than there is now cell phones being just one of the very obvious example, but it's, I mean, it's been, I mean, you couldn't have predicted, or maybe you did. I don't know. Did you think back in 1982, did you foresee where this was headed? And, you know, um, <laughs> I'll, t I'll tell you how bad a predictor I was. The first time I saw a push button phone, a friend showed me one. He was very proud of it. And I said, oh, my God, never seen anything like that before. I said, but I'll bet you that costs more than the rotary phone. And he said, yeah, a little bit. And I said, well, it's never going to catch on then. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's that's how good a predictor I am. And I remember seeing my first portable phone. It was when my daughter was playing softball and her coach showed up carrying this suitcase, big, heavy, bulky thing. And it had a, you know, something in it that allowed him to have a mobile phone, mobile, you know, very <laughs> basic. I had, I had an Osborne computer, which was one of the very first portable computers. It was again, like a suitcase. I remember the dial-up modem in my bedroom. Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> so, you know, having gone through all that stuff, and and I'm certainly not a, I don't consider myself a technophile, and I, I've been kind of an observer, and I try to pay attention. I try to learn. I try to keep up with what's going on. But it's it's a constant struggle because the moment you think you maybe you're catching up to either what the new generation is or the new challenges are they're onto something else and it's it's the you know the the application of moore's law gordon moore uh, the founder of intel and one of the you know pioneers and icons in the industry predicted again going back i think 40 years that each new generation of chip technology would be twice as fast twice as small and twice as inexpensive and he was right and and that's really been the driving engine of the, the whole technology revolution that has changed the world so dramatically just in, in our lifetimes. So, you know, I'm, I'm both in awe of the trajectory and how it really has affected everybody, but I'm also keenly aware of this is not, it doesn't come for free. There's, there's costs and not only economic costs, there's, there's health costs, there's societal costs, there's, you know, you name it, there's privacy costs. It's just, it has impacts well beyond the, intended uh, trajectory and it's, it's those kinds of things that i think are worth paying attention to and i wish more people would right okay so let's let's talk about sort of the path that led you to san jose to begin with and silicon valley and then and then from there obviously what what happened <laughs> that led to Silicon Valley Talks Coalition and everything after that. So tell me a little bit about, you know, where you're from originally and your family background, et cetera. I, I, I grew up originally in Schenectady, New York, upstate New York, near Albany. Um, my dad worked for GE. They were headquartered there in, in Schenectady. Uh, we moved at one point out to Richland, Washington, where he worked at Hanford, the atomic um, power plant that GE ran then back to Schenectady, then down to Rye, which is suburban New York when he worked in New York City. So I bounced around a little bit, but went to high school at Rye High School, went to college up in Connecticut at Wesleyan University, 
And then that was in the, I graduated in 67. It was really at the, the height of the civil rights movement or, or the, near the height of the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement in Vietnam. And so those things were really bubbling around a lot in my head and so many other people's heads. And I decided that I needed to get away from academia for a while. And I, I joined VISTA, the Volunteers in Service to America, which was uh, the new anti-poverty program that Lyndon Johnson had put in, where you know young people were assigned to community agencies and to do anti-poverty work, similar to what Peace Corps did abroad. This is, was referred to as the D Domestic Peace Corps. I ended up in Washington, D.C., working for the Capital Head Start program. Starting in the fall of 67, I was there through 69, uh, spring of 69. And it was a time when, you know, all hell was breaking loose. The, the uh, Martin Luther King assassination, the Bobby Kennedy assassination. Um, we lived in a, uh, the Shaw District, which you may know in Washington. Sure. Um, at, at the time, it was kind of a thought of as a rundown, blighted area. And, you know, we saw, you know, local establishments go up in flames several times when we were there, when the, the outrage over the assassinations in particular just took hold. I was at a community meeting the night that we got the news that uh, Martin Luther King had been killed. And um, we just watched the city starting to burn. So, I mean, that was a searing impact on me. And I knew that I wanted to do something with my life that was going to help bring about what I considered to be positive social change. And, and I think that experience really burned that into me, literally. And I decided to go to law school to get what I thought of at the time as a tool or a set of tools where they could help, you know, me be a, a better fighter for social justice. And so I ended up going out to Stanford Law School. I have a couple of questions about just that section of time you just covered. Okay. So let's just go back. So what did your dad do for GE exactly? What was his... He was an accountant, um, so not a science and tech guy at all. Um, uh -huh. But he was he was good with numbers. He he was trying to help them figure out how to finance their their nuclear power um, division, um, which was hard to do. And he he in addition to working at Hanford, he worked at what was called the Knowles Atomic Power Laboratory or CAPL, which was their nuclear installation in Schenectady. And then when we moved down to New York, he got into broader areas, but that was, I mean, he started out as a traveling auditor and they sent him all around the country auditing their factories. So it was, it was always a finance career. And was he at GE for all of his career? Or, you know, yeah, He was the first one in his family to go to college. He went to Beloit College in Wisconsin. He was recruited right out of there. That's what GE wanted to do, to recruit these young kids from the, the midsection and then put them into their own training program. And that was it. So they did that to a large number of people, and he was one of them. Was he from the Midwest himself? Yeah. Yeah, he grew up in, in Dixon, Illinois, the same high school as Ronald Reagan. <laughs> he, well, they, they weren't so, contemporaries, were they? Right. Reagan was four years older, but he knew their their, their Boy Scout master knew both of the Reagan boys, and he, he, he told my dad one time, it's a darn shame that Dutch was the one that went on in politics. He said, Moon, his brother, was the only one who had any brains in the family. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite the, yeah, he was 
well, I'm not even sure what to say. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think I'll skip past that. So, and how about your mom? Did she work outside the home while you were kids? And just tell me about yeah, her. She did a little bit. My dad was very old fashioned that way. He just didn't, mm-hmm. he, he wouldn't get married until he could make $50 a week because then, then he gets felt he could support both of them. And mm-hmm. um, she worked, she, she grew up in Janesville, uh, Wisconsin, same place that Paul Ryan is from. So, I mean, mm-hmm. these are deep Republican roots. Yeah. She they they met at Beloit and she worked at the YWCA. She she had an interesting story. She went to the nineteen thirty nine Youth Peace Conference in Europe as part of a YWCA delegation, and they were there to try to basically head off World War II. And she was the on the last ship to get out of Europe before they shut down the the transatlantic shipping because of the German U boats. She got home safely, but it was. Uh, and and she came home thinking, oh, everything's going to be okay. That's what people were telling us. So obviously that didn't happen. But she was the one in the family that that kind of brought the social justice perspective to kids. Unfortunately for her, she had three boys. She never had a daughter. She was mm. always disappointed in that. But you know, we all grew up. We were all healthy. We all you know managed to get through and get out into the world and do okay. So. I think she did a pretty good job. Was your dad still around for when Jack Welch took over GE? Oh yeah, and yeah. Selling off of it. Yeah, yeah. He was pretty disgusted. He he was a lifelong Republican up until the time that Nixon was president. And when he saw what was going on, he quit the Republican Party. Never voted for Republican again. Um, and with Jack Welch, he thought that he was just a rapacious, you know, robber baron kind of guy, you know. He, sure, he made a lot of money for the company, but at the expense of an awful lot of both good projects and good people who got cast aside. So he wasn't yeah. happy about that. You, you, there's a new book out that's a that's sort of about that, about Jack Welch and, and the G-Year. I can't recall the name of yeah, it. I've, I've read about it. I haven't read the book, but I've seen reviews of it. Yeah, I'm going to read Yeah, it. he was thought of at the time as, the, you know, the best thing that ever happened to American capitalism. And I think his... Oh, yeah. His reputation's been a little bit tarnished as people look back on it and you know see some of this other stuff. Yeah, he was on the cover of Business Week every other week as you yeah. know the, <laughs> the celebrity CEO and all that. Yeah, and you were an athlete, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I I was a pretty serious athlete in high school, and I I, I played football, basketball, tennis. I I wanted to go to a small college so I could continue to play. And, and I tried to do that at Wesleyan, but I kept hurting my knee. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, I, I tried it for two years and ended up having surgery and all kinds of work done. And it just didn't work out. And I was just devastated. It was like that was such an important part of my life at the time. But I look back on it as, as one of those, you know, serendipitous things that made me look around and find other things to do rather than just, you know, knock heads with other kids. And um, I, I'm. I'm grateful in retrospect, but at the time I sure didn't feel that way. Yeah. I was, I was interested in that just because, I mean, that's, that happens to a lot of people that sports is a, is a real major thing for them, whether, you know, at whatever age. And then when an injury comes, I mean, it can, it can end that it can, it can put an end to that and how to sort of get past that thing you've spent so much of your life really engaged in a, a young life, but you know, a, a, a large part of your long, young life and then have that 
go away sort of the the resilience that's necessary to be able to you know kind of recover from that and find a new direction yeah as i say it was and at at that point going through the injuries and coming to the realization that i just couldn't do it anymore that was the biggest trauma of my life um mm-hmm. and and you know it it caused internal turmoil for quite some time um but at the same time i wouldn't give up the experience of just being on a team and and learning um the the strength that comes from learning to have to having to work together closely with other people and it, it's like i mean literally your your life depends on relying on your teammates you have to be there for each other and that's a really important experience and so i i think you know it doesn't have to be football i i i've i've completely turned off on football just because of all the violence and all the commercialism these days but the the experience of being a, a teammate and being a good teammate is is really important and it serves i think it served me well i think it serves a lot of people well in terms of you know no matter what you do but particularly in the field that we're in um mm-hmm. where we're you know always an underdog i would say in in taking on major challenges amongst entities that have a whole lot more resources and a whole lot more capacity than we do so we have to be really smart we have to be really not only committed but use limited resources in in ways that are designed to have an impact way beyond uh, what would otherwise be our real capacity and so i think that that experience of learning how to do that in high school and a little bit in college has has served me well and and i i look around and i i see other people involved in you know mostly in politics but sometimes in environmental stuff sometimes in labor stuff and i'm i'm always interested to see who has gone through those kinds of experiences and sometimes they they use it in ways of just bullying other people i mean there was a guy who was the head of a semiconductor company out here who went to dartmouth he played football there he was a tough ass and he was a he was a well, i won't use i can language. swear on podcasts it's it's actually <laughs> <You can't>. allowed <laughs> he was a, he was just a total son of a bitch he he made a name for himself by taking on some of the nuns from iccr and you know got a front page picture in the wall street journal he thought that was great so i mean that's the kind of guy he was um, but anyway Draw, drawing uh, the long wrong lessons from <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 well there's a lot a lot of bad lessons to be drawn if you want to there's no question you see a lot of bad behavior but if you can get through it and survive and have your values intact it can be useful yeah and i i understand while you were at wesleyan I don't know where this fits in the timeline of, of the kind of career ending sports ending injury that Martin Luther King Jr. came and spoke at Wesleyan. He came there a couple of times. Yeah. 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 We had a a religion department that had, you know, some incredible people uh, teaching and they got involved in the early uh, civil rights movement and, and went down to Mississippi and other parts of the South met King you know, there were people who became freedom riders who came out of Wesleyan due to that. And mm-hmm. then they were able to get him to come up. And it was on, at least on two different occasions, I got to see him preach there. And, you know, one of the things, you know, you have these funny memory uh, things that stick with you. And he was talking about the parable of, of faith, hope, and charity. 
And he said, you know, a, a close reading of the original scripture doesn't use the word charity. That's been that's been mistranslated. It's actually love. It should be faith, hope, and love. And that's a much better message than charity. And I, that always stuck with me. I, I appreciated that. Yeah. Quite remarkable that you had that opportunity. Yeah. To... Yeah. No, I was really, really fortunate being there. Again, it's a very small school. We had 300 students in my class. So you mm. get to know pretty much everybody. Unfortunately, it was the tail end of the the time in American colleges where they had gender segregation. So it was all just guys within another five years. It was mixed, but I missed out on that. I see. And was there a, a women's college sort of associated with Wesleyan? Not right, not right next door. I used to hitchhike up to Smith all the time to uh-huh. see my high school girlfriend. And there were, there were others that, that were around, but they were you know, like an hour and a half away. You, so you, after Wesleyan, what, what did you major in Wesleyan? I majored in English, English literature. Okay. And then how did you get kind of what, what was, how, what led you to joining Vista and moving down to Washington, DC? I had, as I, as I was looking around for things to do other than playing football, I began to pay attention to what was going on in the world. And I, there were people on campus that were starting to speak out against the Vietnam War. There was a lo- local civil rights group. I got involved with that, doing tutorials, teaching kids in, in uh, poor poor neighborhoods. And I began to realize that, you know, growing up in a very privileged community and then going to a very privileged college was, you know, very limiting in terms of being able to uh, interact with what was going on in so many other parts of the world. And I began to feel that I needed to get some kind of experience that was just radically different than than being in that kind of privileged bubble. And I thought that going into Vista would be a way of doing that. And little did I realize just how much that was going to be the case. It was just such a culture shock. And, you know, it was it was hard a lot of times. It was it was scary. It was threatening. It was, you know, you, you needed to be concerned about your own physical safety a lot. And that was something I'd never, never experienced before. We were living in an all-black neighborhood, and our neighbors would come and take care of us when, you know, literally throngs of people were streaming down the middle of the street with with the shopping carts where they had just been in to loot the local Safeway at, during one of the riots. And um, uh, so, I mean, that was... One time we went out to look around what was going on and people started throwing stuff at us. So it was, you know, a, a very different period of time. One time we went went to see The Battle of Algiers, the, the, the great movie by Costa Gravas about um, the Algerian Revolution. It was over in the, the Janus Theater over near Georgetown. Oh, yeah. I remember the Janus. Um, yeah. And during the time we were in the movie, some big riot broke out and they called out the National Guard. And so when we had to get across 14th Street to get back to our house, we had to go through a National Guard cordon. I mean, that was the kind of stuff that was just going on then. What year is that? That would have been probably 68. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I was there the entire year of 68 and parts of 67, parts of 69. Hmm. So it was probably the most traumatic time to be in Washington of any time that I can think of. And... At the time, I wouldn't say it was 
enjoyable, but there was certainly a, a steep learning curve and I learned a lot. And it just, I mean, rather than drive me away and said, oh, I just want to go live in the, you know, in the woods for the rest of my life, I decided to dig in and say, this, what's going on here is just, it's just wrong. And um, I don't want to be part of that. I want to be, I want to be part of the solution. I want to be part of the problem. I mean, that was one of the slogans that was going on around at the time. And yeah. I just decided that's what I want to do. I didn't go thinking I wanted to be an environmental activist. That was not at all on my mind. That didn't even start thinking about that until Earth Day 1970 when I was in law school and I saw what was going on. I said, wow, this is a very powerful. Oh, and, and another thing that happened when I was in Washington, which is a, another important part, there was a guy named um, Herman Kitchens who had been a SNCC organizer in uh, the Southeast. And he was very suspicious of this, you know, young white kid coming into the neighborhood and saying he was going to be an organizer. And he, at first he tried to scare me away um, and said, you know, get out of here, white boy. And I, I said, well, you know, I, I don't want to cause trouble, but I, I, I have a job I'm trying to do. And eventually he, and he thought I was, you know, some kind of police spy at first. <laughs> okay. um, and, and so he, he eventually grew to appreciate the fact that I wasn't a spy, that I was sincere. I was just misguided. And he said, okay, if you really want to change the world, make it a better place, go back and work in your own community. Don't come into somebody else's community. So go do your own thing where you will be appreciated, where you can actually be effective. And that clicked with me when I saw what was going on on Earth Day, thinking, oh, maybe this could be my community uh, in a broader sense. And that was really what got me for the first time really thinking about that. So I have one other VISTA-related question. There was you, – you, you participated – or either observed or participated in a a furniture strike, sort of a you were you were you were working on welfare rights, I believe, and and there was a a sit in. Uh, you correct me if I get the details wrong. Sit in at sort of a local D.C. welfare office by people who I, I think they maybe had a right under local law to furniture that they weren't getting, or and just kind of explain how that played out because I think it's a really interesting story. That's when I was doing VISTA training, and okay. we, were, we were training a group of people um, that were working with George Wiley and the Welfare Rights Organization, and they organized an action. There was actually a section of the, the law that established the welfare program, as I understood it, and the law said that poor people who couldn't afford furniture for their homes could get access to free furniture through the program, and so... They organized people to show up at the local welfare office and say, we're here to collect our furniture. Of course, no one had done that before, and they weren't equipped to deal with it. And when they were told there wasn't any furniture, they said, okay, well, we'll just wait here until you get some. <laughs> so this was the, the tenor of the times in the, the late 60s. And they ended up having to call in the police. And that just sent shockwaves through the whole VISTA bureaucracy because they were freaked out. And our VISTA supervisor was really upset with me and, and the others saying, you guys are going to ruin this whole program. We're right here in a fishbowl in Washington, D.C., right under the nose of Congress. They see this stuff going on with the programs that they're funding, and they're going to cut off the funding. They're going to kill the whole program. It's because you guys are so stupid, you didn't understand that. So, I mean, he really read us the riot act. Another kind of real politic lesson of having to learn the hard way. And I remember 
The, oh, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> well, the, but the people sitting in who wanted the furniture, they they wanted their furniture. They didn't want to just. I mean, it you there was sort of. Oh no, no, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. What if you, if you're in that situation and you learn that the law says you're entitled to it, and somebody says if you come down to the welfare office, maybe we can get some. You know, people showed up, and they were they were totally in good faith. They didn't go there looking for trouble. They went there right. looking for something that could help them survive better in difficult situation. So it, it sort of presented a, a moment of working inside versus working outside and the tension yeah. between direct action, you know, basically calling the question by sitting in and saying, okay, we're here to get the furniture that we're entitled to. And then this sort of broader structural and political concern of, okay, but that direct action also has these other implications for, you know, the, the broader program and what people can get. So yeah. What did you, uh, did you feel like you had a, a way of reconciling those two kind of, um, the tension of between those two positions then oh, or later? Or? Not, not very well. And it, it's an, as you say, it's an ongoing struggle. And I think yeah. what it taught me was to try to, whenever trying to assess a, um, a new situation or a potential strategy, try to see it from multiple points of view, not just one point of view. Even if you end up taking one point of view, you got to at least be aware of what the other ones are. And and particularly when the, the stakes are in that case potentially pretty high. And and it wasn't it wasn't unreasonable for for our supervisor to say, you guys could screw the whole program up. And yeah, you know, once we and we'd never thought about that. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, so you then you after your Vista experience, you moved to to Palo Alto and went to Stanford. Was there any particular reason you chose Stanford, or did you apply other places? Or you you I you said earlier you decided that law school was going to potentially give you a set of tools to help. Yeah, yeah, and I wanted to go to California. I'd, I'd spent the summer of '65 in California. I really liked it a lot. I only applied to two law schools, Stanford and Cal, Berkeley. I didn't get into Cal, so I went to Stanford. So oh, okay. if I'd gotten into Cal, I would have gone to Cal. So. Uh -huh. well, how, was, how, did you, how was your law school experience? Miserable, <laughs> um, just in one word. I mean, I was, so, I was so upset by the experience that I'd just been through. And, you know, I was one of a handful of students there who didn't come directly from from college, I, I had a very hard time relating to other people, and the—I mean—the war continued to rage. Um, there was still lots of fallout going on in the civil rights movement. I—I uh, I, I was a pretty lousy law student, and I didn't appreciate the the experience. And I—I I mean, there were a handful of professors there who I—I I really did appreciate, and I was really glad to be able to work with them. But by and large, and, and you know, Stanford considers itself to be the training ground for the the elite and the the tomorrow's leaders. Right. And in that sense, they they expect you to go on to become a partner in a major law firm and to help the major corporations do their job. I mean, that's that's the career path that they're training people to go through, largely, not entirely, but yeah. that's that's kind of their framework. And it was it was not not what I wanted to do. And so I had, a, I had a tough time. I did meet a small group of people that were kind of like-minded. We 
we ended up forming a student chapter of the National Lawyers Guild, which was starting to rebuild after it was almost red-baited out of existence in the 50s. Um, right. And and it, it you know, they, they passed a resolution saying that law students could become members. And so there was organizing going on in a lot of campuses all around the country. And that was a really important experience because that got me introduced to some older radical lawyers who had been through a lot and who were, you know, wanting to help to uh, support younger people coming along who could, you know, get involved, whether it was in labor law or criminal law, or at the time, environmental law was not even really on most people's radar. But it was, I mean, I, I think back on that when I think about all the activity going on now with grand juries, with all of the um, DOJ investigations of Trump and his allies, and the, the whole question about immunity and use immunity and transactional immunity. Well, we dealt with all that back in the days when they were going after the, the radical activists on the left and putting them into grand juries and we had to learn all that law. So, I mean, there were certain things that have, have stuck with me. And and luckily, I was allowed to do a what they call an externship my third year, where I didn't have to be on campus the whole first semester. And I could work off campus on a project. And I decided that I was going to try to set up, get set some roots in San Jose, which is just south of Palo Alto, yeah. and do work with, at the time, first of all, doing work with local groups that were focusing on police brutality. And we set up a, a little office called the People's Legal Defense Office and worked with a group called the Black Berets, which were kind of an offshoot of the Brown Berets, which were a larger, better known Chicano organization throughout the Southwest. And together we were able to support people who had gotten beat up by the police and to help them try to try to get some kind of compensation for their injuries. Oftentimes they were charged with, with some kind of a crime and get them good defense lawyers to help them out. So that went on for a couple of years. And then I wrote up that, that work for my paper and I got a semester's worth of credit to do that. So that was a really good mm. thing. And while I was there, I also met some of the organizers who were organizing the cannery workers. At the time, the canning industry, fruits and vegetables was the major industry in, in the South Bay. And there was a local cannery workers committee that was made up of uh, Chicanas and Chicanos who were largely marginalized in the workforce. And we started working with them to try to help them get better working conditions and to actually start running slates in the union elections. They they had a Teamster contract, uh, which had been imposed on them by the, the management with a sweetheart deal with the Teamsters. And so we we ended up working with the, the committee who uh, got candidates to run in the union elections and started winning some of those elections. So that was another really ex interesting experience for me. Yeah. It was at the time... Just to, just to finish the thought, the, the canning industry was kind of at its apex then, and it started winding down as the canneries started moving away from Silicon Valley out into the Central Valley or down to Mexico. And just around that same time, this new industry known as the electronics industry started growing up. So a lot of the workers who had been working in canning just switched over to the electronics industry. I and so see. I, I switched over along with my wife, who at the time was doing a lot of the same kind of work. Uh, on health and safety, we kind of switched from working with cannery workers over to electronics workers. Right. So before I ask you about that, 
you met Tony Amsterdam when you were at Stanford yeah. Law School. Yeah. So he was one of the one of the people that really inspired me. He was my advisor for that project I described. And so just say a little bit about Tony Amsterdam for probably a lot of people won't know. Well, he was he was a, the most brilliant person I've ever run into. You know, photographic memory. You know, he's a genius. One of the few people I've met, I would say, was a genius. And he had a uh, he taught criminal law, criminal procedure. He did a seminar later for people, and he was trying to train people to, you know, represent those who don't have resources and who need it. And he was trying to implement, you know, constitutional jurisprudence to his law students. And he was just such a good teacher that everybody really liked his class. I remember he also ran a, a side project at, a, at the time when William Rehnquist was nominated for the Supreme Court. And it was pretty clear to me, as well as to a lot of other people, that Rehnquist was not somebody who was going to be friendly to anything that we believed in. Yeah. And Tony helped organize some of the research to try to find things about Rehnquist that could be put into the confirmation hearing that might be able to put a stop to his confirmation. And unfortunately, uh, that didn't work. And you know, the rest is history. That was the turning point. I went to law school partly because I thought that, you know, the courts were where you went for justice. And the Earl Warren court that I grew up with, that kind of happened um, in, right. in several significant ways, whether it was, you know, school desegregation or right to counsel or, I mean, you name it, the, the loving decision yeah. came out during that time. So really important social justice project progress coming by people doing litigation. And Tony, his, his, his real, Tony Amsterdam, his real goal was to use litigation to abolish the death penalty. And he had a very elaborate strategy following all the different death penalty cases all around the country, trying to figure out which ones were going to come up through which circuits and, and which ones were going to get to the Supreme Court and chipping away, you know, piece by piece. It wasn't all just one thing. And that was, you know, he was doing pretty well on that strategy. And then Rehnquist came in and, and it kind of put a, put a damper on that. But uh, it, he, he was a remarkable person. And I was, it was the best part of being in law school was getting to know him. Yeah. He, he must've been a little bit of an outlier amongst the faculty. Very, very much so. And he was, he was new. I think maybe my first year was his first year too, if not his second year. And un unfortunately he didn't stay there very long. He later went to NYU, I think it was. And, but I was I was fortunate to have been there, overlapped with him. So what year did you graduate law school? 72. Okay. So then Earth Day happened while you were in law school. Yeah, 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 yeah. And as I say, I and, and, you know, Dennis Hayes was right there at Stanford, so it was a big deal. Um, um, right, yeah. And I, I was, frankly, I was kind of cynical about the whole thing, thinking, oh, this is just, you know, the establishment's way of, taking energy away from the anti-war movement. I mean, that's really what I was thinking. But I also did see that it, it really resonated with millions of people. And, you know, all the stuff I was doing, if we could resonate with 25 people, you know. <laughs> yeah. So it was a different scale. And I started to think about, well, why is it that this is so appealing to people? And what is what are their messages? And I started to think about that and realized that, you know, there, there, and, and particularly if, if it were a people-centered 
Earth Day, which is, mm-hmm. and that you started hearing those, some of those debates. You know, are we just really protecting the birds and the bees and the trees, or are people part of the ecology that we care about? And you know, over time, as as you know, the environmental movement got challenged by the environmental justice movement significantly, and and all those issues came to the fore. And, and there's been tremendous evolution uh, over time. But at the in the early days, you heard nothing about environmental justice. You heard very little about how people are part of the environment. It was mostly about the environment was someplace else rather than right. the environment is everywhere around us. Right. So it's interesting that, you know, the, at the time, particularly that Earth Day originated, like you said, there was one kind of view of it that it was a way of taking energy away from the anti-war movement, sort of a diversion. Then there's the argument, well, <laughs> it takes place on Lenin's birthday, not John Lennon. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, so, and so, you know, it's part of this communist plot and whatever. And then, I mean, well, the other one was that it took away the, the focus on May Day, which was the workers' holiday, the workers' oh, day. And so, right. I mean, there was all that stuff also. Yeah. Interesting. Did you attend something for Earth Day since you were there and Dennis Hayes was there? Did you? I, I don't think I did. I don't, I don't remember that I did. So I, I think I'd remember that if I did. Yeah. But I, I was, as I say, I was aware of it, but I'm not a participant. Yeah. And just, I forgot to ask this. Silent Spring, 1962, did that ever, did that book or that argument, uh, did that ever enter your consciousness prior to that? Yeah, it did. It did. I wouldn't say it was a central part, but it, I mean, I paid attention to it. I don't think I ever read it, but I, I read about it and I, I discussed it with people. And the fact that, um, and it helped me to understand life cycles. It helped me to understand the web of life and that, you know, Whereas I might have said, well, why should I care if a bird's eggshell isn't as strong as it should be? That's too bad, but so what? And, and she taught us why we should care about that. And so that was a pretty important, important lesson. Not the kind of thing that you get introduced to unless you grow up in nature or you learn about it in school. And I certainly never did. Right. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, that's so that's sixty years ago, and I mean, so much of what happens, both environmental harm and public health harm, is all there in that story, right? The spring yeah, DDT yeah. and the the yeah. corporate crime, basically, and the yeah, I mean, just it's yeah. it's all there. That's yeah, yeah. The more the more I learn about her, the more I realize that she was just this again an extraordinary person who overcame and. Re- resisted tremendous pressure against her and, yeah. and uh, made such an impact. So, Yeah. Okay. So you, you were working at the can, working with the cannery workers, helping them organize. And like you were saying, they, they sort of had a, a uh, <laughs> there was a sweetheart deal, as you said, between the teamsters and the canners. Yeah. Say a little more just about the, well, just a little more about that. And this, this transition, why did, so I think I know why the canneries left, although, I mean, there were all these orchards there, right? I mean, the, the, the valley, the canneries were there because the orchards were there. So what, what went away first, the canneries or the orchard? The orchards got cut down first, and then the, the cost of real estate started going up, mm-hmm. and the, it, it became um, very costly for the canneries to continue operating as, as the, the whole valley started to change. 
and they they could find much cheaper labor and much cheaper real estate out in the Central Valley or, or in Mexico. So there were there were some fights about that with canneries shutting down, but they all closed down and moved away in a pretty short period of time. Mm-hmm. But it was while I was still doing that work that I met Mandy, my wife, Mandy Hawes. Yep. She came to a meeting at the Palo Alto Law Commune one time. I was hanging out with them and she was working for Legal Aid over in the East Bay and Legal Aid wouldn't allow you to take a an impact case. They said it was a fee generating case. And so she was trying to find a lawyer who would help on a um, an appeal from a settlement of a, a Title VII race and sex discrimination case against the canneries and the union in a for a company called Basic Vegetables. Mm-hmm. And uh, since I was already doing some cannery work, I said I would be interested in doing that. And so we started working on that together, me formally, her informally in our off time. Mm-hmm. And we got to know each other. And we actually ended up uh, appealing this settlement to the Ninth Circuit and uh, claiming that it was a, you know, not only an inadequate settlement, but the, the procedure had been inadequate. They had designed the notice to the class to go out in the middle of the winter when most of the, the workforce, the seasonal workforce, was not around. A lot of the seasonal workforce migrated from Mexico during the summers, like field hands. Right. Um, so they sent out the notice. Much of it was never received by people. And we made the argument that this was deliberate, that they did this because they didn't want to, they knew it was a, a lousy settlement and they didn't want people to object to it. And, and to everybody's shock, uh, the Ninth Circuit agreed with us and issued a, uh, an opinion called Manduhano versus Basic Vegetables and decided that if you're going to be sending out a notice to, to the class, it has to be done in a way that is designed to actually reach the, the members of the class. And, and you know, it, it continues to be good law, and I think it was, it was a good decision, but it was quite surprising. It was shocking to us. Anyway, I ended up doing some more cannery worker litigation and also at one point filed a what's called a duty of fair representation case against the Teamsters Union uh, oh. for their failure to, failure to represent the immigrant workers and the women. And the union was made up mostly of Italian guys whose families had worked in the canneries for generation and it was uh, they were you know they, they rigged the rules to to try to stay in power and we actually got the the um, west coast conference of teamsters to send in a team to investigate and they held a hearing we brought in witnesses to make our case we didn't end up winning but we we shook up the teamsters and pretty soon after that the county workers committee started winning some of these elections and so I would say that, you know, over the course of maybe two or three years worth of work, that there, there was some impact that, that actually did make a difference. But then again, it was a rather just before the time when the cannery started moving away. So you were already had quite a background or developing a background in organizing. Yeah, I, I, I thought of organizing. I mean, that was what we were supposed to be doing when we were in Washington with Vista. They were teaching us community organizing skills. We read Saul Alinsky. We read a number of organizing tracks. We got trained by trainers who were SNCC organizers. Mm-hmm. I mean, for, for you know, a, a new program with a bunch of uh, middle-class kids who were wet behind the ears, they introduced us to, you know, I thought, pretty 
uh, impactful curriculum and we, we tried to learn what we could. And then the more I learned about law, the more I realized, oh, my, my first writing assignment in law school was you could pick your topic. And I decided to pick what, what constitutes uh, moral turpitude, meaning what, what do you have to do that is so bad that they can keep you out of the bar? And, and that was apparently on my mind at the time. And so there were two cases in California. The first one that came down that ruled that you could keep somebody out for, you know, using in, incendiary language of some sort. Really? Um, yeah. But that then was the, that was a California bar decision. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, then, okay. then it was followed shortly after that by another case involving Dan Siegel, who had been president of the student body at Cal Berkeley and who'd made a speech. I think it was probably an anti-war speech where he was calling students to, you know, take action. And by that time, the Supreme California Supreme Court had changed personnel. And that time, behavior that was pretty darn similar to the previous behavior was ruled to not be moral turpitude. And so that really opened up the, uh, the, the whole perspective on who was going to be allowed to be lawyers. And so once I realized that, that it had more to do with who, was the, who were the judges rather than what the law said, it, it made me realize that law is inherently political as well as textual. And so I, I and, and, you know, the lessons learned in the Lawyers Guild was, were, you know, since you're always up against more power, you have to be better organized. And it really helps if, if you can work with communities. Um, and in fact, you need to be working with communities rather than, you know, thinking that you have all the answers. And so the, the, the organizing part was always a, you know, central to the, the, the uh, strategy of, of using law for social change. Of course, I ended up discovering or feeling several years later that trying to change the world for the better by filing lawsuits was probably not a very good strategy for me. And that's why I got out of practicing law. But that was, that was I mean, the, the intersection of law and organizing was always important. Yeah. And you were also, I mean, as we'll talk about, you're, a lot of the Another key component of your work has been working with unions and labor, and so early on you're you're supporting labor and unions by representing the cannery workers in different ways, and yet also seeing sort of the old union or the the problems with some unions when there's corruption or just ossified, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We saw the whole thing. Another case that just you just reminded me of is one of the first cases I ever did was for Zoe Lofgren's father. Zoe, I mentioned, was she's now our Congress representative. Yeah. Her father was a beer truck driver in Palo Alto. And he got into a beef with the his employer, but also the union, the Teamsters Union again, that wasn't representing them. And she was looking for a lawyer who would be willing to take on both the union and the employer. And that's something that most lawyers don't like to do because you piss off everybody. And I was young and naive. And I said, I don't know anything about it, but if you want me to, I'll try. And she said, okay, fine. Nobody else will. So, so I represented her dad and we finally got it resolved to, you know, at least some, some degree of satisfaction. But it was, I was, I, early on, I was trying to, you know, be both a criminal lawyer 
focusing on police brutality, but also a labor lawyer. And yeah. I, I discovered that if you don't join one of the handful of big labor law firms, um, you're just not going to get the union business. So mm -hmm. I got, you know, scripts and scrabs here and there, and sometimes to represent, you know, a rank and file caucus or something like that. But it was it was tough to actually, there was one union that was a sugar workers union that was a, a, an old friend got elected to be the president there. And so we represented them for a while. But because of that, I, I got to know people in the local labor movement. And so when things started to develop, where I was looking for allies, when we started the Texas Coalition, I had much closer ties with people who were labor activists than I did with environmental activists. And there frankly weren't that many in the South Bay. So, but, but from the, from early on, those two threads were, were both important to me. Right. And I, I, I'm not sure if this fits in the chronology. So if it's, if it's later, I don't want to ask about it yet, yeah. but the work for the school lunch, this made me think of this was, when you were talking about the, those moral turpitude and the Supreme court changing in California oh, yeah. and yeah. Ronald Reagan was governor during a big chunk of time. So you worked uh, with the, I think the American Friends Services Committee in support of a, sort of a statewide school lunch program for poor kids. Yeah. Is that, is that during that time or is that later? Uh, that's when I first moved to California. I got out here in April of 69 and didn't start law school until September. And so. Oh, okay. So this is before all that. Yeah. I had a friend from college who was working for AFSC, the, the Friends Service Committee. And he said that they were going to be supporting George Moscone, who at the time was a state senator from San Francisco, who had a school lunch bill in the state legislature. And if I wanted to, you know, almost for volunteer, it was like, you know, I don't remember what it was, but you make a few dollars a week to help them. But it was... A, a grassroots legislative strategy. And it, it meant that I would go to various parts of California where there were representatives. Uh, if it was on the House side, we'd be going to House members' districts who were on the relevant committee or the Senate, same thing. But it meant that I got to visit lots of different parts of California just as a brand new kid out here and get to meet with you know people who had been active with Quakers who were active with the American Friends Service Committee, and they would write letters. It was really old-fashioned citizen lobbying. And if you could generate a half a dozen letters to a particular representative on a bill that they might not have been paying attention to, sometimes that worked. And it actually worked really well. And then we would go meet with the, the legislators after generating some of these letters. And the thing that really sticks out in my mind was that there were two full-fledged John Birch Society members of the state Senate at the time, Bill Richardson and um, Bill Richardson and John Schmitz, John Schmitz. And, and so I met with those guys and, you know, these were curmudgeonly guys. The John Birch Society at the time was putting up billboards in Southern California and Arizona and place like that saying impeach or warn. That was their, and, and th these were, these were the, the, the magas of their time. Right. And, yeah, right. What, what I remember, one of them, and I think it was Richardson, who said, you know, I hate this kind of stuff where, you know, we give away taxpayer money to poor people. But he said, on this one, I'm going to make an exception because my mother used to tell me that there were kids out there that didn't get enough food to eat and that that was wrong. 
And so I'll support school lunch, free school lunches for poor kids. <laughs> so, so the thing went, it sailed through the, the legislature only to be vetoed then by Ronald Reagan. And it took many years after that to resurrect it. The Toxic Avengers podcast is produced by me, Daniel Rosenberg. You can visit our website at toxicavengerspodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at ToxicAvengerPod. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you're listening. Send your feedback and guest requests to ToxicAvengersPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of the Toxic Avengers Podcast.